Hello everyone, I am so thrilled to be here. Um, JT Ellison and I have taken over Pam's studio here on Authors on the Air. And so she has no idea what we're gonna talk about, mostly books, but I'm sure there'll be something about cats in there, um, just to keep Pam happy. Um, so but we're thrilled to be able to take over her studio to talk about our two new books this month. Um, I love having sharing a release month with JT because we get to see each other more often. <laughs> and so JT's book, um, Her Dark Lies, came out earlier this month. And my book, Tell No Lies, comes out tomorrow. Um, I will say I read JT's book. It was one of those things I started it when I got, as soon as I got the arc, I started it. But then I had to put it down because I had to finish writing a book. And so I basically read it in two sittings. I read the first third of it in that first sitting. And then it's like, as soon as I got back to it, it's like, okay, I'm just going to finish the book because it was so good. It's one of those that, okay, you don't want to put it down, but you know, you better put it down soon. Otherwise you're not going to get to sleep. And so once I, you know, I put it down cause I did have a deadline and then I picked it back up, read the entire thing literally in one sitting. Um, it, it is that good. And so I, I told her, I thought it was the best since the Taylor Jackson series. And that was not a lie. And I'm a huge fan of Taylor Jackson because I love police procedurals. Um, but this, it was so strong and so twisty with just such amazing, complex characters. So she's going to talk about that. Um, I hope so JT, tell us how your book has been doing and what you've been doing with it. It's, it's been doing great. I, this is what, I don't know how many events you and I get to do together, but this is third or I think tonight is three and four. And I'm so excited to be able to do this with you because you and I have a really long history, which I want to go into. Um, I'm going to be real brief about Her Dark Lies because I want to talk about Tell No Lies because it's coming out tomorrow. And that's really exciting to me because it's a fantastic book. I love the series. I love everything about everything that you're doing. And I want to talk. I've got so many questions. So, okay, very quickly, Her Dark Lies is the story of a young up and coming artist named Claire Hunter who has fallen in love and has gotten engaged to a man 10 years older than her, a widower named Jack Compton, who's Parents are incredibly wealthy and they are getting ready to leave on their wedding weekend on his parents' private island, Isola, off the coast of Italy. And because it's a JT Ellison novel, everything goes dreadfully wrong very quickly. <laughs> like, Otherwise, it wouldn't be Off a cliff and then, oh, and then cliffs and then all of these things. So it's, um, it's a gothic and it is definitely an homage to some of the earlier great gothics like Rebecca and then there were none talented Mr. Ripley. It's got bits of all of my favorite gothic novels in it. Boom. And it is fabulous. It really Thank is. You. Thank you. All right. I want to hear about Tell No Lies. I want everybody to hear about this book because it is so awesome. Look, it's sitting there. I um, the Tell No Lies is it's a series. Now JT is doing standalones right now and I'm hoping, mm -hmm. hoping she'll go back to one of her series at least at some point in her life. But um, I know, I know standalones are very hard to write. I won't say series are easy to write. It's just, it's nice when you get to revisit your characters because you don't have to recreate an entire character in an entire world. And so one of the reasons why I do love writing my series and the Tone of Lies is the second book in the Quinn and Costa series. And, and I think most reviewers have said it can stand alone and I try to write them so that they do stand alone because they have a complete mystery and a complete story arc. 
but you get to revisit the same characters. And I think that for me, I like doing that. So the second book in the series takes place in a very teeny town called Patagonia, Arizona, which I decided to write about before I moved to Arizona. <laughs> um, I don't know. Really? Yeah. I, um, I picked this probably about three months before we decided to move. And I, you know, because you have, this book was written well over a year ago. I mean, I turned this book into my editor 18 months ago. So my cat, okay. I got to get up because my cat is scratching at my door because I closed my door and he's not. Uh -oh. <laughs> so I will, I will slip in here on Allison's behalf. Um, I'm fascinated actually that you set it in Arizona before you lived there because the setting is incredible and incredibly vivid. Did you do it? Were you doing any trips at the time when you were writing this to, to do the research? So you had the cities. I meant to go. Cause I did finish the book. <laughs> I meant to, I, <laughs> I meant I to, I meant to research book. the setting, <laughs> but um, I, I've been to Arizona many times. My oldest daughter lives here. She's a Phoenix PD officer. I've She's been here for nine years. So I came down to visit her, you know, two, three times a year. So I'm very familiar with Arizona and the climate and the desert and the hiking trails and all that kind of stuff. So that's all, you know, I was comfortable writing about. I did do a lot of research about the area because I didn't know anything about Patagonia. It's a real town. Um, it's a very, very cute town. It's a former mining town. They, in order to survive, they basically have turned over. They, they're a little bit artsy. They have art festivals, but it's a very small town, like literally a thousand people. And so it was, it was a lot of fun learning about the area as I had moved here and was writing about it and learning about it. But I do, like you, I do tons of research in my book. So I felt very comfortable. And one of the things with the uh, writing the series and the series characters is that I can, the, the reason why my mobile response team series takes place in different towns is because I get bored very easily. And so I want to explore the country. And so my characters get to explore the country. So I, um, you know, the first book took place in a little town outside Spokane, Washington. Spokane's not that big. So it was a little even smaller town. And this book took place in a teeny town outside Tucson, Arizona. Um, Patagonia is an hour south. Um, and then the next book in the series takes place in the San Juan Islands. So I get to go and travel the country with my characters. And that makes it a lot of fun. That is. So let me ask you this, because it was something I was thinking about as you were writing this. These smaller towns. It's very hard to insert cops undercover in insular societies, right? I mean, any anything I've ever done with a small town, everybody knows your business. Everybody, I've lived in small towns. Uh, they know your business. They know everything about you. And so when a stranger comes to town, everybody finds out. So how are you balancing inserting your people undercover into these towns? Well, um, the first book, they weren't undercover. They were all, they were you know, just investigating a serial murder case. This one, and you're right, and I did consciously think about that. Um, for Kara, she is, came in undercover as a bartender. Now, I know from my research that the town has this huge art festival. And so it would be realistic to me that if she is just coming through town, just wants a temporary job, she has a good backstory and a good, you know, they set her up with a, a false backs background. And 
she's able to come and say, yeah, I just want a temporary job. Her fiance was murdered. Um, his, her fiance was not murdered. It was her partner in Los Angeles. So she did have that emotional baggage, but she was able to go in say, Hey, it's not long-term. And they were able to hire her for in a temporary position. Um, so that worked. Michael Harris, who was undercover in the refinery, he was a little bit harder. So I kind of created, I did a lot of research about refineries. They do go have a lot of staff turnover. It's very, very hard labor, a lot of the work. And so I've decided, well, I know a lot of veteran-owned businesses and veteran-owned businesses like to hire other veterans. Michael was a veteran. So I was able to basically create this world where, okay, this company is going to go out of its way to hire veterans down on their luck. So they gave, Michael is a veteran, so he didn't have to lie about that. And they just gave him a down on his luck kind of backstory so that he could come in and take a position and he was willing to do anything. So I know there's a lot of turnover, especially in the manual labor in this business and because it is such an intense job. So he was able to get in that way. And then they were completely separated. See, and this is how a master at this genre creates worlds in which characters can do the things that nobody else could make that work, right? So I, I hope it works. It also, I think it does. I mean, I think I it works. A lot of fun with it. I think it works really, really well. It's a, so honestly, we need to back up for two seconds, though. Can you just tell us a little bit about Tell No Lies? What is the story? Um, basically, Tell No Lies starts with a murder. And because obviously we write suspense. And so an environmental activist from the college was killed and she had actually accused a business of environmental crimes two years ago. Um, and so her boss, she's an intern for, it, it, I did fictionalize the Arizona Environmental Protection Agency because sometimes when you do certain things in books, you don't want to use a real entity, mm -hmm. um, but it's based on the Arizona um, QED. So she had actually accused someone of environmental crime that ended up getting that business in a lot of trouble and a lot of expense. So her boss said, you have no evidence that these birds are dying of, of any sort of toxic dumping. And I'm not going to go and start an investigation against the same company you accused two years ago where we did start an investigation and there was nothing there and created a lot of problems in the community for this agency who needs to have that trust with these businesses and it caused a lot of problems with the local community that felt that somebody was getting away with something. So she decides to investigate it on her own and she ends up dead. So now her boss feels extremely guilty that he didn't listen to her. And so he starts investigating on his own, calls in the FBI and the FBI decides to go in undercover to see what's going on. It ends up that they, um, they uncover a lot of, different kinds of crimes all connected to a an illegal dumping scheme so but what they uncover is far far worse i just don't want to give it away <laughs> no and and I'm, I'm trying to dance around it does the setting really give you some fresh avenues to pursue because of that you know i think um being a border town, because it's only 20 miles from the border, I, I've done a lot of research on border issues. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, well, actually, you know, Tony, Tony Kazi, our yes. good friend. <laughs> our good friend, Tony. Hi, Tony. Our good friend, Tony. She and I um, talked for three hours brainstorming the core of this idea. And the core of the idea is actually what the, the core of the book is, not the illegal dumping. 
But she reminded me that a lot of that land, not just on our side of the border, but on the Mexican side of the border is privately owned land owned by corporations, thousands of acres. It is almost impossible to patrol all that land. And that's right. why you have a lot of crimes that are committed as people are coming across the border yeah. because there's so much land. I don't think people realize how much land is there. Um, and so you, we brainstormed all the possible types of crimes that could happen. And that was kind of how I came up with the idea. That's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. <laughs> um, okay. I want to, I want to talk about how we met because it's a great story and it was a very embarrassing moment for me because you're like the, you were the second author I'd ever met. The first being John Connolly, who I met at an event. Um, in person, I'm talking about in person, who I was a fan of. I mean, I'd met other writers, but but I mean that you were you were my ideal. You were Allison Brennan. Oh my God. And we, I go into we go to Thriller Fest in Phoenix, the very first one. Very nice full circle that we've got the whole Arizona connection to that. And I saw you come in and you got in line to get your hotel room. And I had already gotten there and I saw you and I made a beeline over for you. I'm like, oh my God, Allison, oh my God, I'm, you're so, would you blurb my book? <laughs> Which is A, friends at home, don't ever do that. Don't ever go face to face with an author and ask them to do something. It's just not cool. But you very kindly said yes. And it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And I've always admired you as a writer and I'm blessed to call you friend. And it's just, it's very fun that we've got this nice full circle back to your writing. You're in Arizona now, you're writing about Arizona. That said, I wanted to know, are there any mobile response teams? Is that, is that a real thing or is that a fake thing? It's kind of a twist of what a real... Uh, so the, I, I twist it around. So, you know, the show Criminal Minds, mm -hmm. the BSU does not go around to the entire country. On a beautiful and jet. And, oh, yeah. That, that is the happen. most, yeah, no, that's BS. It, it, it exists. The BS unit, unit exists. I've actually been to Quantico twice, toured it, talked to people within that unit. They really were in the basement. So actually, if you watch the um, Mindhunters series on Netflix, mm -hmm. that's really very, very close to how that unit was created. It was a great series. So mad they canceled it. But they, um, so it, the BS Union unit exists. So for the mobile response team, I was thinking, okay, take something that exists, but make it a little different. So most FBI offices have what's called an evidence response team. And they are mm -hmm. a specially trained group of FBI agents. They do their regular FBI agenting jobs. But when there's a very specialized case, they get called together and work as a unit to solve the crime. Um, the one that when I went through the FBI Citizens Academy in Sacramento, how I learned about this was, remember the Yosemite murders with Carrie Stanner? Mm -hmm. um, well, obviously that was very close to my home. I'm from Northern California. So the evidence response team actually came in to investigate that case because they had specially trained agents in every single field, um, you know, forensics and evidence collection and interviewing and what whatever it was, they brought them all together to solve that crime. And that was kind of what I was thinking with the mobile response team. I have specially trained agents who come together to solve these complex cases. And I decided, well, I'll make it 
a test case of the FBI. If it's successful, they might have a couple more teams. Where did, would they go? Well, they're not going to go to San Francisco or Los Angeles that have huge FBI units. They're going to go to areas that are maybe underserved, rural, where mm-hmm. you're not going to have even a resident agency close by. So that's why I created it. Um, yeah, I you saw see, Vicky, the MRT is like the FBI on steroids. That's yeah, awesome. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, basically yeah. it. Because, you know, it's fun to be able to have everybody has their specialty. And you could bring them together. And so it was the best of the best. So it is based on a real FBI unit. I just decided that they would be mobile rather than focusing in one jurisdiction. Because like I said, I get bored and I don't want to write about the same area all the time. <laughs> well, and the the other fun part of it is there are a lot of big personalities. A lot of big personalities. And there's a lot of clashes that are going on. And that's helping drive this series forward, which I love. A lot of tension sexual and otherwise. <laughs> well, you, know, you have to have it. I mean, you have to have. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, life. It's human beings. They're human. And, you know, some people are going to be attracted to people. And I mean, I don't really write romantic suspense anymore. But to me, when you have a emotional relationship, it makes all the stakes that much higher. So that's why I usually, even if I don't have a romantic suspense as the backstory or the backdrop of the book, it's going to be incorporated in a subtle way. And they really mostly have sexual tension. I think the next book, they have to deal with it a lot more um, just because of the type of case and their living situation and all this stuff. So I, I was able to like up the tension a lot, which was really fun. <laughs> so so you, you're saying you don't write romantic suspense anymore, as much anymore. So this is something I kind of in a constant loop of trying to educate people what the difference is between a romantic suspense and a thriller, because a lot of times they just, oh, it's a woman, it must be romantic suspense. And that's just not true. Romantic suspense, and tell me, it cut me off if I'm wrong, romantic suspense, the plot is secondary to the romantic relationship between the main characters. Or in a they're, thriller, they're so entwined. Like somebody is told you that you can't take out the romance and still have a plot and you can't take out the plot and have a romance. So they're okay. so blind that they develop together. Um, I, I do think it's kind of a double standard because I know a lot of male thriller writers who their characters have sex in the books and they're never called and relationships. Romance. Yeah. And, they and they have relationships in, and marriages. <laughs> and you throw in, and if you're a female writer and your character has sex in the book, it must be romantic suspense. I mean, ultimately that's kind of, it is a double standard. I just deal with it because, you know, what can I do? I write what I write. I love what I write. I'm, you know, I'm not going to change. And I like having those, the relationship part of it. And I like the emotional aspect to these characters. Otherwise it's just, well, and again, we're all different. We all write differently. And so we have different voices and different emotional levels and different ways we deal with suspense. And I think that's all great. It doesn't make it romantic suspense because if you take out the romance in this book which there's not really any romance they do have uh uh sexual relations at one point but i wouldn't necessarily call it a romance i would call it though they have a budding relationship and it's going to be going forward and it's very complex um because he's her boss and he wasn't her boss when they first met so i'm kind of dealing with those kind of issues too which is also fun (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is, it's it's awesome. Do you have a favorite character of any character that you've ever written? 
that's like asking if I have a favorite child. I have to <laughs> No, because, you know, none of your characters are going to be ticked off at you if you tell the truth. No, I, I would say that I have different favorite characters at different times. Just like sometimes one of my kids is a, my favorite child at a particular point, like when they bring me Starbucks and I didn't ask for it. You know, oh, you're my favorite child Aww. today. <laughs> nice. Um, except I gave up Starbucks for Lent, so I haven't had that for a while. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I... Lucy Kincaid is always very near and dear to my heart because I've written so many books with her and I feel like I know her so well, but I would probably, I think sometimes it's the secondary characters that are my favorite characters to create. I created um, in a book that came out years ago, uh, Poisonous, it takes place in, um, oh gosh, uh, Sausalito, <laughs> where a place you know well. Um, and it, it takes place there. I created a character who is um, mentally slow, intellectually challenged. He's going to regular school, but he, you know, he's just struggling. And his younger brother is loves him, but is so angry at how people treat his older brother because he's this, just this big guy that seems like he's a brute, but he's just the sweetest kid on the planet, and he's just slow. And so his little brother wants to like fight for him all the time, and that yeah. those two characters. I, I just, I fell in love with them. I just wanted to mother them maybe, but they became important characters in that story. So I think sometimes when I create a secondary character that I have an emotional attachment to that I want to protect or that I feel has a compelling story to tell, they end up being kind of my favorite characters and I'm not bringing them back. You know, they're, that's the kind of the one and done. And, you know, sometimes I miss that. So I do try to incorporate those kind of characters in my books because I think they're, uh, and well, you did that too in her dark lies, and I'm not going to remember any names because I've written a book since I read that book. Oh yeah, um, no, never. Uh, and I've read like I forget the, the cat shark shark. But here. your secondary characters, the ones that complement Claire and Jack, they are they actually kind of make the story. It's mm -hmm. their depth and the way that they contribute to the plot and the way they contribute to the suspense that actually makes the book. And I think that's true for a lot of the secondary characters. And if you can do that and make a, how create that compelling cast of characters, um, it's amazing. And, and that every one of your characters was necessary. I sometimes create extraneous characters and I have a very hard time, um, you know, killing them off. Like I loved in, in Tell No Lies, I loved writing Bianca and Angel. There are two kids yeah. on the run. I, I just was felt for them and I put them through hell and I just, oh, and I wanted the way her bunny. I mean, did you have to steal the bunny? That made me, I was so sad for her. I know. And I, I, I know you put your characters through hell, but then you, <laughs> you do, you, you feel for them. And if you can feel for them and you create them and you know, what's going to happen then, and you're still going, Oh my gosh, are they going to survive? You know, the readers are going to feel the same way and the readers are going to be invested in those characters. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's always been my rule all the way down to even a tertiary character, which is just somebody that, you know, it, it's the, it's the, the 
waitress in the diner that you see once, right? She has no real role in the story other than to help move the plot along. But you can't have characters that don't move the plot along. That's their role. Secondary characters are, I mean, incredibly important. And even the tertiary, I mean, I, I don't want to ever have an extraneous character. That's that's my goal. And it's funny because sometimes you forget that and you end up with people who are like, who are you and why are you here? You're gone. <laughs> you know, in revisions, I've actually, um, my editor, I, I love my editors. I've had the most amazing editors. I have three publishers, three amazing editors. And they'll say, do you really need all this character? So I've like combined cops where, excuse me, you need a cop to go basically be on first on scene or to talk to your detective or whatever. I just make it the same person now because I used to be, I would introduce different ones and I'd give each one of them a little backstory because <laughs> you don't just go into a cold. You don't want a stereotypical cardboard character. And so, but then they're not that important. But if you just meet one cop that just happens to be at all the scenes, then you can say, Oh, how are your kids? Or how's your wife? Or, you know, you can have that little more well-rounded, character development rather than three cops that you just throw out there. Right. And I had to learn that. I mean, that was a hard lesson for me. <laughs> <laughs> what, I know everybody wants to know because uh, this is my favorite question. How do you write? What's your, what's your process like? What's your writing day like? How, how do you, how does the magic happen? Well, you're going to have to answer this one after me. Um, the magic happens. Um, <laughs> I uh, usually during revisions, but um I don't have a set process. I put in the time. So to me, if I put in the time, the book is going to get written. Some days it's a struggle and I might only get 500 words down. And because I, the story's not, I don't plot. So I don't have every, an outline or anything like that. So the story's a struggle. I might only get 500 words down. The next day, I might sit there and write 5,000 words and all in the same period of time. So I try to commit to a time. So a minimum of six hours a day and some, and I will write longer. If I'm on a roll, I'm not going to quit. I, if I'm on a roll, I will write until that roll ends. Um, and even if it's through dinner, um, but if I'm struggling, then I will, you know, okay, it's four o'clock. I'm done because this is just not coming. But <laughs> as long as you're here at the computer, it does, the book will get written. If you're not sitting down writing, the book is not going to get written. It could be written in your head, but you have to put in the time at the computer. And I, that's the way I get my stories done. So again, some days are awful, barely squeeze out 500 words. Other days I can get 5,000 words done and be like, this is a great scene. And I know it's a good scene. So, and that's then I also, also, the other thing is I took a page from James Rollins book. He spoke to my uh, a writer's group I was in in Sacramento because we were both from Sacramento. He was a veterinarian. He was actually my cat's vet before we were both published. <laughs> Not really? Say that. No, I'm serious. Oh, that's awesome. And that's, I love that story. So he, um, he said he, this was when I would just like do sort of like a brain fart, put everything down on the book and then go back and revise. He writes about 10 pages a day sometimes a little more or less, but usually 10 pages every day. And then he prints it out and edits on hard copy. And then the next day he'll go in, make those edits on his computer and write the next 10 pages. So he's going like this, right? He's like going like cyclical. I started doing that and it has really helped me. 
and it just helps me write a cleaner book. It helps me get back into the story. I don't print out the pages, um, I, but I, what I do is in the morning, I edit what I wrote the day before and get back into the story and then write the next scene. And then that way it helps keep the book flowing. It gets me excited about what I'm writing. And by the end of the book, it's usually pretty clean. It's pretty tight. And I just need to go back and fix things because inevitably I have to fix things. <laughs> <laughs> how long does it usually take you to finish a bite? How long is it? And, I'll, and then I'll answer. How long does it usually take you to write a book? Oh gosh. Anywhere from eight weeks to a year. I mean, <laughs> no, that doesn't sound yeah. No, but every book is different. I'm, I get it. I'm on contract for a book. It usually takes me write my rough draft or my first draft is 12 weeks. That's probably my average time. But then I, I go in and I probably spend a month of revising that. So I, you know, four months a book. That's why I can write three books a year. Um, and then I send it to my editor and then I'll do revisions, editorial revisions. I'm very happy doing. Awesome. So I'm I'm not really that much different. I believe in showing up to the page for the work. I mean, that's the important thing. I shoot for a thousand words a day. I feel like I've fallen short if I haven't hit it. I feel like I've succeeded if I do. Um, but the most important thing is to show up. So I, you know, I try to write from 10 to 12 just to kind of refresh myself as to what I did, I go back over what I did the previous day. I edit that, um, you know, I'll add things, I'll fix things, I'll move things around. And then as I'm getting ready to go to lunch, I start thinking about, all right, here's what I want to hit this afternoon. And then do lunch, driveway date, whatever. And about 1.30, I'm back to it. And I'll work through, you know, usually four or five. By five o'clock, I, I want to shut down, go work out, make dinner, all of that thing. You know, I try very hard to have a better work-life balance so I can, you know, move because movement is really good and and still, you know, be with my husband and and be away from it because if I'm in it too long then I can, you know, I can spoil it. It's 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 like, you know, bread that you leave out, it molds. It's really weird to say, but the um but like today I wrote 3000 words this afternoon and I, I don't know how I wrote 3000 words this afternoon because it didn't feel like I wrote it. I'm like, did I copy and paste a whole bunch of stuff and it just added up. But then I keep a spreadsheet of, of daily word counts that, you know, just aggregates over the year. And I subtracted where I was now from yesterday's work. And it's like, Oh, all right. Well, I wrote 3000 words today. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, I but, you know, it's, you wrote none. <laughs> Well, I will say tomorrow my book comes out. So today I was at the Poison Pen signing stock. Yeah. Then my daughter and I had lunch. And then I went to get my husband's birthday present because his birthday's tomorrow. And <laughs> tomorrow I have two events online and then a softball game for my daughter. So tomorrow I won't get any writing done. But And, oh, and then Wednesday we're touring U of A because uh, she's already accepted her. But we're going to go down there. So this week is basically shot. But I did work right over the weekend. So, but I mean, it's book release. Nobody expects you to actually be writing during book release. And honestly, it's kind of ill-advised because you'll do what I was doing because I was trying to write during release and I kept saying the wrong character names. I kept saying the names from the book that I was writing. So I, I stopped and I went ahead, I took a couple weeks off. Um, 
I've been thinking about the story, but but yesterday, Friday and today is my first really big days back. And, you know, gosh, it doesn't it feel great when touring is done and you can start getting back into it. I mean, it's I, I don't take that much time off, but I did take, I usually will take like about three or four days, be, you know, just to do business stuff, you know? I, yeah. Yeah, it has to get done. <laughs> Had to get my newsletter ready for tomorrow. I did do some other things. So I, you know, it's just, I don't like being away from it too long because for me, I'm such a creature of habit. If I step away for too long, like Christmas break, I always will take a week off because you, my kids are here. And since three of them are out of the house now, you know, I want to spend time with them. So I'll take a week off at Christmas. It takes me like a week to get back into my production. Yeah. And so that's why I try not to take off too much time. And I do, I do write seven days a week. I just don't write as much um, on the weekends or if like I have to take a day off, like, you know, softball games or whatever, then I'll like put in the time on Saturday. Um, but because one of the nice things about being a writer is that flexibility. So if I do have kids events and all my kids have been involved with sports, um, if I do have those things to do, I could take that time off take an entire day off and go to a softball tournament two hours away and sit there watching games. That's great because then I know I can make it up later on. And so I, I don't feel guilty. I do not ever feel guilty walking away from it to go do stuff for the kids because they're going to be gone. You know, no, they're fair <laughs> enough. They go away so fast. I have three out of the house. It makes me sad. Well, well we are rolling over the end of our time. So let me finish with this, please tell us, I know that the book doesn't come out till tomorrow, but what happens next? What's next? Um, I just finished The Sorority Murder, which is a new book, kind of a standalone, could be a series with a former US Marshal, Regan Merritt, who gets involved with a podcaster to solve a cold case in Flagstaff, Arizona, which I have been nice. to after my research there. So I, that was really fun. So my editor is reading it. I should get revisions very soon. And then the next Quinn and Costa book comes out next April. And that is untitled, but I'm calling it the point of no return. So maybe if I say the point of no return, oh, I actually I like that. Make it that title. <laughs> my editor said she likes it, but you never know. Um, so that's the third book in the Quinn and Costa series. That's also done. And so I'm just waiting for a sign off on the next story idea so that I can start writing it. Um, hopefully Thursday. <laughs> so if my editor is watching Thursday is when I want to know which of the two story ideas I sent you that you want me to write because I'm going to get started one way or the other. <laughs> I'm going to do it. If you don't tell me what to do, I'm going to go do what I want. And you never want us to do what we want. That's funny. <laughs> Allison. Oh, I'm, I'm working on another standalone. I'm, I've been dibbling away at it for the past couple of months and I, uh, I'm, I'm more than halfway. I, I hit a good number today. So awesome. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I want to, you know, the, the standalones take me a lot longer than the series. Series books are, are they just go faster. The, the world's already built. The characters are already built. There's a storyline going on. You're just kind of dropping into, you know, parachuting into a plot with everything already on your back. In, in a standalones, they just take me longer because I'm developing things in a different way and approaching it in a different way and building characters in a different way. So 
I'm hoping maybe I can have it done by the end of April. That's kind of my goal, but I still have a lot of touring to do. So we'll see what happens. So is this, this book coming out end of December, March? When are you? I don't know. What, you don't know yet? No. Isn't that? Don't know. <laughs> it's been rocky for me. Yeah. I, I like to have a schedule. I like to know what I'm doing, but you know. <laughs> you know how the world works. Sometimes it doesn't do what you want it to do at the time I, you want it to happen. I, we'll figure I, it out. It, I'm sure it's going to be fabulous. I cannot wait. <laughs> you are so sweet. Well, y'all, just as a as a fun thing, as it happens, Allison and I have an event tonight at Poison Pen, a virtual event. So if you would like to hear more of our discussion, because I still have like 80 questions we didn't get to. <laughs> I'm the James Lipton of conversation. I, I need my stack of, you know, cards. Um, so please feel free to stop by uh, Poison Pen tonight on their Facebook page. And both of our socials have the links. You can come and, and chat with us a little bit more. Hey, good to see you. We we love you, James. We miss How you is too. not my cat? How <laughs> is not my cat doing? Very fun. Very fun. All right. This has been awesome. We're going to sign off. Allison, you're the best. Good luck with the book, Break a Leg. I know it's going to be a gazillion seller like they always are. I I'm really excited for you. Fingers okay. crossed. And we'll see you in 90 minutes. <laughs> I'll see you in 90 minutes. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Ciao. Bye. Bye.